All right. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for joining us. This is June 24th, 2007, and we are now on the Gizmo channel. Um, there's not really any point talking about the, uh, the phone number, because by the time you hear this, it will be in the past. So uh, this is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, and we have a lively group of chillingly bright intellectuals uh, on the phone uh, who are uh, not uh, in any way, shape, or form mutable. So um, that's going to be a challenge, but there's always the unplugging of the computer. So we do have a management tactic. It's just rather nooky. So uh, thank you so much for joining. Uh, this is, uh, again, Stefan Molyneux. Uh, um, uh, sorry there hasn't been as many podcasts as I'd liked over the last little while. I had some other stuff to, uh, to work on. But uh, I did have a very uh, enlightening uh, and long uh, listen to uh, a whole series of criticisms from a fairly prominent board poster. We can call him Bab. And uh, he uh, and I, he spent about two hours uh, dressing me down about various things to do with my behavior uh, on the board and some recent stuff with, um, uh, with, uh, with bannings and so on. And uh, I'm just uh, waiting for him to... I'm more than happy to post it because I think it was a very good debate. And uh, um, I'm just waiting for him to uh, give it a review before uh, I post it. And I think that's going to be quite, uh, <laughs> quite an interesting listen. I've listened to it again since. Uh, I listened to it yesterday, so uh, I think it was uh, definitely quite, uh, quite interesting. And, and uh, we came to some very good conclusions, I do think about uh, better ways to, uh, to move forward. So uh, that was uh, that. Was that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't have any particular big list of topics. I always have stuff that I can talk about. But uh, I don't want to take up the valuable member's time. If you would like to, uh, um, we'll just have to have a free-for-all. It'll be, it's like a dinner party where we're all blindfolded. So um, if you can um, uh, just... Uh, 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 sort of shout out if you want to talk and we'll sort of uh, work it out or figure it out in that way. So if you have any topics uh, or questions or comments, issues about anything recent, new, old or future, then um, uh, we could type them into the chat window for sure uh, or uh, we could uh, just um, uh, you could just speak up. All right, Mr. G, you're up. Oh, really, you are. Yo, well, there we go. What's up? No, where's your English accent? Where was, where's your English accent? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, in, I'm actually in Hanover today, so... No, but you were in England for a um, couple of days, right? That German! Um, you know, yeah, if I could uh, hang on to my British accent after having left the country 25 years ago, the least thing that you can do is adopt it after a couple of days in the country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I tried. I I just I, I can't do it. Hmm. It's um no so so many years in the Midwest. My my uh, my speech patterns are so flattened out that uh, I I couldn't do I couldn't affect any accent if I wanted to. Ah right right. Well it's true. The Midwest is uh, pretty much like if a computer were to speak uh, English while being simultaneously dosed with morphine, that would be pretty much how it sounds, right? <laughs> uh, just about, just about. Okay, so uh, do, you, do you want to tell us anything about your trip, or do you want to go straight into questions, or what's your pleasure? Oh, uh, yes, the trip. Um, I, it's just a lot of, um, 
sightseeing gobbledygook, so I figured we'd probably just go right into questions if uh All right. Go ahead. That's all right with you? You bet. All right. Um now I just have to dig them up here. Oh, uh, no rush. We're not live. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, sorry, just for those who don't know and who may be listening to this later, um, uh, by, by, by trip, what Greg means is either that um, uh, he's gone to Europe uh, and, and has left the Midwest, or he's still in the mid- Midwest but is taking an exorbitant amount of mescaline. So we're still trying to figure <laughs> out which one is which. Uh, so we're not sure, and that's probably one of the reasons. When he says sightseeing, he means the amazing uh, contents of his navel, so um, we can talk more about that later. Oh. All right, sorry, we just somebody else who... Um. So then you just click on OK, and just right-click here and say invite to chat, please main radio, and then invite. Oh, there they are. I found them. Ah, good, excellent. Sorry. No, no problem at all. I'm uh, I'm okay for filler, as you're all pretty much well aware. It's the content sometimes that's a challenge. Okay, so uh, something that um, we were kind of uh, Jake and I were kind of hoping you would um, take some time to uh, go over. Um, there, there's a lot of um, of uh, of psychology and philosophy terms that pop that pop up during conversation on Saturday on Sundays, and also uh, in a lot of podcasts too. And they seem to be like not so much conversation terminators, but uh, where every everyone in the room kind of just nods their head, oh yeah, 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 and. Uh, some of us are going, uh, what did I just miss? <laughs> um, and uh, the, well, the short list we came up with, which I'm sure um, you could probably fill a couple hours with, um, is um, uh, the concept of self-esteem, um, the concept of narcissism um, and then on the um, philosophical side the concept of uh, virtue and the concept of nihilism what are they how do you identify them what what distinguishes them from their opposites, uh, that sort of thing. Ah, okay. Uh, well, I, why don't I just give the very short definitions, at least the ones that I work with, and then you can tell me that they're perfect and there's nothing else to ask. Um, uh, the first one was self-esteem, sure. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, a self, self-esteem is it's just the physical health of the soul that results from acting virtuously, right, with integrity. Uh, and and there's sort of two kinds of self-esteem. The first is a practical kind of self-esteem, like uh, I know how to fix my toilet because I've done it before, and you know whatever, whatever, right? So there's that kind of self-esteem, right? So if you're not a brain surgeon, to go and apply for a job as a brain surgeon would not indicate a very high self-esteem in terms of judging your own skills rel- relative to reality. 
And then there's the self-esteem, which uh, comes from, uh, you know, doing the more difficult things in life that require integrity and uh, knowing that you can trust yourself to do those things. And if you don't do those things, that you'll be able to, you know, recover and turn about and so on. Right. So if you're 16 and your car for the first time, having very high self-esteem about your driving would be sort of delusional. Um, so there's the self-esteem with relation to reality as a whole, and then there's a subset of that which is in relation to, to virtue. Because right? you could have self-esteem like, I know that I'm a very good thief, like I can bump into someone and sw- take their watch right off, uh, and that would be self-esteem in terms of an accurate representation of your relationship to reality, but that would not be the same as, as virtue. Um... So, so then, self-esteem is is just an evaluation, an accurate evaluation. Well, an evaluation of your um, um, of your of skills your or abilities. Efficiency. Yeah, of your of your abilities with relation to to reality. Okay, and the more accurate that estimation is, um, the the greater your self-esteem? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of a process, right? Because the, the question of self-esteem is, is more related compared to what, right? Uh, and uh, the compared to is with, with relation to reality, right? So it's the decisions, and the, the, um, uh, the decisions that you make and the skills that you acquire, and it's a constantly growing process, right? So I have greater self-esteem with relation to my abilities in philosophy than I did, say, 20 years ago. Um, and uh, I have less great self-esteem relative to 20 years ago. I don't know, go, go and club it and if I were single and picking up some 18-year-old girl in a bar, right? That would not be higher on my list of things that I could achieve. So it's a constant tweaking and a process that goes on where you're comparing what you can do relative to reality. And there's always some uncertainty involved. And there's that level and then there's the level where there's integrity relative to, uh, to virtue. Okay, so, but what does it say about someone's self-esteem who, um, who, who say, at 40 goes to a club and tries to pick someone up at 18, 18-year-old 18 and actually succeeds, right? Well, it means that, would that be they, they inaccurate. Right, huh? right. So, so they, they, they can, um, they have self-esteem relative to they can judge their ability to do X with relative accuracy, right? So if, but, but that's not the same as being virtuous, right? So the, to me, there's just two kinds of, of self-esteem. And the, the most important one, the, most, the one that really has an effect on your happiness, is the one uh, around virtue and integrity, right? Uh, uh, the other ones is important, uh, you know, and has some relationship to your happiness. Like if you're going to pass yourself off as an electrician, it's good to know something about electricity. But uh, for me, the more important one is is the the one regarding virtue. Well, could you clarify the distinction between the two then? Because um, I'm not sure I I'm not sure I quite get that. Well, uh, I mean, there's um, you can be good at things, and then you can be good at being good, right? Now, okay. I think, I mean, so y- in a sense, the first judgment that you have to make is being good at things, 
right? Because, you know, when you're a kid and you're learning how to tie your shoelaces, you're not necessarily learning the major cardinal virtues and so on. But you have to learn to be good at things. That's usually the first step. Even if you just think of something like object constancy, you know, the ball rolls under a blanket and you know it still exists, you have to learn to be good at things first. And that's how you develop competence uh, or the feeling of competence with regards to your own ability to interact with reality, if that makes sense. Okay. All right. That, I mean, that's, that's the first kind, right? Right. So then the, then the second kind would be um, being able to accurately judge your uh, competence in terms of what you know to be good. Yeah, I mean, and, and they're, they're basically on the same principle, right? So in the first one, you basically develop competence with regards to reality by recognizing that reality runs on universal principles, right? It's gravity and electromagnetism, I mean, even if you don't know what those things mean, right? You, you, you're able to catch a ball as a baseball player because you know it's not going to sprout wings and fly away, right? If you think it's going to sprout wings and fly away, you don't run to catch the ball, so you don't learn how to do it. So we learn how to be competent with regards to reality by recognizing that the reality runs on universal principles. And as a subset of that, we become, we become competent with regards to ethics once we understand that ethics runs on a series of universal principles. Okay, so... All right, so let me see if I've, I understand this then. It's not a uh, self-esteem then. It's not necessarily an estimation of your your self-worth as much as it's just a um, an estimation of your um, competencies either with regard to practical skills or with regard to intellectual skills. For sure. I mean, because when you talk about something to do with self-esteem, it can't be an, a, a completely internal process. Because what you're saying is, I have to value myself. And the question is, of course, relative to what, right? Compared to what? How do you compare the value of yourself to? And it must be something that's external, right? There's no self-esteem which says, I had a really good dream last night or a really bad dream last night. Or, you know, that, that's not an issue of self-esteem because that's a purely internal state. So self-esteem is when you compare, right? So if, if you are a, a priest and you say that the way that I'm going to cure cancer is to pray, God, pray to God that cancer will be cured, Right then, then you are not uh, acting with like with efficacy with regards to reality. If you are a scientist who accepts the scientific method and you work hard, then you you may not achieve it, but for sure you're going to be using the right methodology. Right. So, if you try to affect the world, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I didn't say anything. Oh, I mean, if you try to uh, if you try to be effective in the world, Stop recording conversation. If you try to be effective within the world without recognizing universal principles, you won't succeed. I mean, you, you can succeed in manipulating people like the Pope succeeds in manipulating people, but that's by using non-universal principles, so that's the equivalent of somebody saying, uh, I want 
to have property and to steal property. So I want to affirm and deny property rights simultaneously, which is not competent in terms of ethics because it's not subjecting ethics to universal principles in the way that science and, and math and all those other good disciplines that work do. Because reality runs on universal principles, any human theory that doesn't run on universal principles is going to have trouble, right? It's going to run into problems. So to the degree which people confuse subjective impulses or desires for universal principles, uh, they're going to run into problems, right? Because then it's just manipulation, and then you have to do that Randian thing where you rely on the, um, uh, the judgment of others, right? That, that's that, the, uh, the second-hander stuff that Ayn Rand talks about so, so passionately. So, well, I mean, you're, you're going to run into problems only if you're not the pope or the president. Well, I mean, th that comes back to, you know, does the pope have self-esteem? And, uh, I mean, that's, that, that's the problem that ethicists always have, which I talked about recently in Objectivism Part 2, right? That's the problem that ethicists always have, is that they have to say, well, Hello? the pope doesn't really have self-esteem because he's manipulative, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, but I sure know that the theories that the pope prescribes don't work. So, so the goal, I mean, ultimately the goal of, um, of conforming um, your thinking to reality, your actions to reality, is not necessarily um, the achievement of some kind of material success. It's well, no, that's not under your control, right? So. It's, vir it's virtue for its own sake, is what you're saying, right? Right. I mean, we, we, are, good. we, we are good not to win the lottery, but to, to live effectively and to be happy. I mean, and, and to live with integrity, with consistency. So you can't... Uh, I mean, this is the Randian thing, and I sort of had some second thoughts and think I may have overstretched the case in that podcast a little, just when, in terms of talking about whether she meant the achievement of integrity or the achievement of external success, but... Uh, no, I mean, um, uh, you, you live with integrity, uh, even if that integrity causes you to not be very successful in the Nazi party or something, right? So, so um, what, um, I mean, if, if, uh, if, if you can't, well, I guess it really gets down, that comes down to then, what you were the case you were making in that podcast as well, which is um, you know, for people who want to be good, you don't really need an ethical system. For people who don't want to be good, no ethical system is going to work for them anyways. Right, right. And my solution is, is not to address either of those situations. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that, that gets us into a whole other can of worms too, which is how do the two live side by side? Well, they don't, right? They they tend to live where the right. bad people dominate the good people, right? Through propaganda and force. Sure. Which, which, um, I mean, doesn't that kind of doesn't that kind of imply a, a bit of a, a pessimistic view of uh, the world for those of us who are uh, in search of uh, an ethical existence? Well, I mean, pessimistic or optimistic, what I would say, I'm not sure, but what I would say is that um, I certainly believe that the, the power of the argument for morality explains why evil is so prevalent in the world, right? Evil is so prevalent in the world because evil is redefined as the good, and everybody wants to be good. 
right? So the reason that dictatorships and, and even our own democracies put so much effort into propaganda, as does the church, as do families, is because propaganda really works. And why does propaganda work? Because people really want to be good. So if you can redefine the good, then you can make bad people, you can make good people do bad things. You can't make bad people okay, do good things, but you, right? So the fact is that propaganda only works because people really want to be good. And so when you redefine the good from the ground up, you can change. It's the most powerful way to change the world. If people didn't want to be good, right, you wouldn't need all these justifications. You wouldn't need propaganda. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So then, uh, I mean, that, that ties right into the, the definition of virtue that you work with, which essentially is what is just... UPB. Um, UPB. <laughs> <laughs> um, excuse me. Well, maintaining integrity uh, with reality, right? Staying, staying honest in your assessment of yourself uh, with relation to reality. Right, right. I mean, science is organizing your thoughts about the material world with reference to universal principles and reality. Right? And, and virtue is simply organizing your thoughts about what is good and evil uh, with reference to reality and universal principles. So what's an example of um, of a virtue? What's an example of virtue? Yeah. What would be a good example of virtue? Or uh, to put it another way, actually, a better way, you, you mentioned a minute or two ago um, cardinal virtues. What, what Which um, virtues are in that list for you? Well, I mean, the ones we've talked about a couple of months ago with the difference between aesthetics, ethics, and morality that, you know, the moral stuff, I mean, the, the fundamental evil is the violation of, of, of property and personhood through theft and violence and to some degree fraud. I mean, to, to whatever degree people want to get lost in that maze, I don't know. But, I mean, there's, there's the stuff which you, you can't do and be a good person, right, which is you kill and rape and assault and steal and so on, right, because those are complete violations of any universal norms of human behavior. Um, so to me, those are the cardinal virtues, right? I mean, you, they're, they're necessary but not sufficient to being a good human being, which is you absolutely have to not kill, rape, and you know, molest children and all that kind of stuff to be a decent human being. But, but is that a virtue or is that just a, a refraining from a vice? Well, I mean, if you look at, think about like some, someone who chain smokes, like if they, if they stop, if, like if, as long as they continue to chain smoke, they're not likely to be very healthy. Now, if they stop chain smoking, they're going to be a hell of a lot healthier than if they kept chain smoking. Does that mean they can run a marathon? Well, I don't know. But it's still a better thing to do than to chain smoke. And in the same way, if you refrain from beating people up on a regular basis or you refrain from bullying and terrifying your children, uh, I would say that's a pretty good step towards virtue. And I would say that, that because I know that that's a challenging set of behaviors to change, I would say that it's pretty laudable to do that. But uh, don't, don't, isn't don't you also have to take into account, you know, there may be some guy who wants to beat the crap out of his kids, but his wife won't let him, right? Or uh, Versus the guy who actually doesn't want to beat his kids at all and doesn't, right? So Well, but then the question is why? Why are these two people different? And I would submit that they would be different because of how their parents treated them, in most cases. Right, but what I'm saying is, doesn't that play a role in defining that virtue? Right, I wouldn't call the guy who 
wants to but never gets the opportunity to beat his kids, a virtuous person. Who wants to beat his kids but never has the opportunity? Oh, I say that. I mean, that, the, the, and again, parenting is a bit of a different atmosphere because children are so dependent and their minds are so tender and so on. But if I, if right. I walk into my house every day and I absolutely and completely and totally want to beat my children and grit my teeth and refrain from doing so, do, do you think that I'm going to have a great relationship with my children? <laughs> I mean, if I really want to beat up my <laughs> wife every day, but I'm like, oh, the cops have installed these cameras. I mean, it's just going to come out in some other way, right? I mean, so the virtual... One of these days, Alice, right? Right, right. Or, you know, like uh, uh, if I say to my kids, kids... Um, if your mom wasn't home right now, I would beat the living crap out of you, right? I mean, that's pretty terrifying to children, right? Mom, don't leave, right? I mean, that's, um, that's they'd buy the inflatable mom doll, right, hoping to, you know, defraud the dad. But uh, no, I mean, if... if uh, oh, sure. Sorry? Sure, but, uh, but that, I mean, that that would be a, a pretty ugly situation. But the the point is that... Uh, if we define it by action alone, uh, then he would be virtuous. Well, sure. I would, say, I, would say, I would say that anybody who doesn't beat their children is more virtuous than somebody who does. Uh, okay, now it's... So, so we're talking differences of degree here then? No, no, that's an absolute difference. Anybody who doesn't beat their children is more virtuous than anybody who does. More virtuous. Yeah, I mean, what I mean is beating your children is bad and not beating your children is good. Right? In the same way that chain smoking is bad for your health and not chain smoking is better for your health, or, you know, it's good for your health relative to chain smoking. Well, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be more accurate to say beating your kids is a vice and not beating your kids is a virtue? Well, sure, sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that, would be, that would be fine with me. Oh, Hello. Yeah, I wonder if those beeps are going to. Uh... All right. Did you, uh, did you have any other any other questions uh, or that you wanted to talk about just now? Was there anyone else who wanted to uh, uh, to jump in? Good to have you back, brother. Oh, glad to be back. <laughs> the uh, the language barrier uh, makes things a little bit. Uh, um, Oh, I, I guess I could say that uh, this is the most I've spoken since I left uh, London. Right. I was going to say before, because uh, I know that uh, Tuttle is pretty, uh, like, you can't get a word in edgewise, so I thought maybe you would include before <laughs> you uh, left London, before you got to London, but yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, since then, it's pretty much all been uh, please and thank you. Right, 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 right. So not a lot of English speakers, or just not very good English speakers? Uh, not very good English speakers. Um, Although Amsterdam, but go on. Amsterdam is better than uh, better than uh, Germany is, but uh, um, but it was still difficult. You know, as far as insensitive, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, there there is the, the again cultural dominance factor there, you know. I guess you can't argue. Right, right, right. Blame them for being, uh, you know, a little resentful of American tourists who 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 aren't 
fluent in 18 languages. Right. right. Let me try this again, but louder. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you speak U.S.? Right. U.S. of A. That's right. I'd like a burger. Senor. Dead silence. All right. Okay, so did you anyway. have uh, any other questions? Uh, I don't know if we had... Oh, I got a pile of them. Uh, why don't you... Well, just in case anybody else wanted to, um, uh, to ask uh, a question, uh, we can just uh, oh, sure. open it up, and Absolutely. then if, you, if nobody does, we can sort of continue. It's been the sound quality. One of us in this window is not muted. Oh, dear. He's got Buddhism. Um... Yeah, we do have some Buddhism. We do have a bit of an outbreak, don't we? Of uh, Buddhism on the board. Quite fascinating. Uh, the, some of them did manage to survive the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, 808 podcast, but they are hanging on by a grim death, uh, one or two of them. So we shall do our best to, uh, uh, to get them sensible or get them gone. I don't know. I mean, this is probably, maybe this is sort of culty-culty on my part, but to me it's just a little bit annoying when someone who's a Buddhist comes to um, uh, uh, comes to a philosophy uh, show or comes to a philosophy board and uh, then um, uh, ends up uh, uh, talking all about Buddhism. I mean, to me, that's just a little bit rude. Uh, you know, in the same way that if I went to a uh, Buddhist uh, forum and started talking all about rational philosophy, um, but record, no, I guess they stop recording conversation. They can troll if they want, but uh, not troll exactly. I don't mean troll like be bad, but troll like as in put the line in and see who bites. But uh, it's uh, <sighs> it's uh, annoying. So anyway, did uh, anybody else uh, um, have uh, any uh, questions or issues, uh, things they wanted to share? I I certainly got some news from some people this week that they might want to uh, share with others. Uh, or can anyone hear me at all? Am I talking to myself? Hello. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about you. Yes, you. I'm staring straight at you, my pixel friend. How you doing, Seth? I'm good. How are you doing? He's in the I money. Have some, uh, I have some massively wonderful news here. And, Talk, uh, brother. For those of you following along at home with the, uh, the saga of the Rodzilla, um, the letter that I wrote to that uh, former employer who owed me a ton of money it worked like a charm. I, I wrote a letter, called up a lawyer to see if the tone of the letter was correct and everything like that, and he said, yeah, sure is, and you should do pretty well with it. So I sent it in, and I just a few days ago got a call from the, the HR woman at the company, and she was really great. She was actually um, one of my favorite people at the company, and she said that she had had a meeting with the new CEO of the company and the company lawyer. And I guess this new CEO is a reasonably stand-up guy. And so I guess on uh, July 3rd, they'll be receiving new funding. I guess it's, it's the new quarter or something like that. And I guess I'm going to be getting a check right off the top of that for all the stuff that they owe me plus 10% per year since. So <gasps> it's wow. pretty darn fast. That's nice. Yeah, it's, it's really good. So. That's a lot more reasonable than the interest I'm charging people who haven't donated yet. So I must say that's quite <laughs> impressive. That is quite impressive. Yeah, wow. no, it's, it's it's really great. And the most amazing thing is that this has been the 
one of the biggest monkeys on my back for years. I mean, yeah. this this has been going on since '03, I think, and my gosh, I just it's <laughs> it's all starting to fall into place now. I've got the new bit new businesses started up. This uh, nice yeah, seed capital right there, right? A little bit of capital is falling into place right at the same time. So it's wow, it's just amazing. Well, that's great. That's great. That's I mean, that's just fantastic. Uh, and uh, so, how, how are you feeling? I mean, you must be over the moon. Yeah, I don't know. I think until I get the check in hand, I think I'm just going to try to keep myself a little calm down about it. But it's it is really, really, really exciting. I mean, I I got off the phone with um, the the lady from the company, and I I was sitting at work, and I literally had to clap my hand over my mouth to keep from screaming. It was just such a rush, you know. <laughs> I used to have that at work too, but for different reasons. But I know what you mean for sure. For sure, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. So, what uh, what is the schedule now? When can we start ordering all of our graphics and design and engineering needs from the great uh, uh, the great new company? Uh, you can start anytime you want. I, uh, let's see. I think the actually the web address for just the information that I have is on the profile for this Gizmo thing, but. Um, so far, it's just a really extremely rudimentary web page. It's just a, a placeholder, more or less. But uh, And would you like to mention virtual... it for the nice listeners, 25,000 people who might uh, enjoy your services? That's <laughs> uh, okay. They can, uh, they can go through the, um, the uh, boards. I'll put up a, a little blurb about it on the boards. Right, right, okay. Okay, excellent. Well, that's that's fantastic. I mean, that is just beyond thrilling, and uh, I think that's great. And uh, uh, I think you know, I mean, I think it was worth waiting. A ten percent a year is not a bad return on investment. And, not too bad. Uh, uh, and oh, we had a request to post it on the chat, uh, your website. And um, oh yeah. And also, I mean, if you had, I mean, these, these kinds of things, you never know, right? Because it could just be this new guy who's more rational and and decent. But um, it could also be that you have. Being able to, I mean, it, there's a, it's an amazing how dense human communication is. So you have, uh, in the letter that you put together, uh, you probably had uh, a certainty uh, and a, um, a directness that got action far more quickly than might have been the case in the past when you were sort of ambivalent about it or scared of it or whatever. So uh, waiting Holy. until the right time is usually a really good idea. Yeah, actually, when I uh, when I put the letter together, I showed it to a few people, and they're all saying, "My gosh, this is really good." You know, they said it sounded like a lawyer put it together and stuff like that. So it was, um, yeah. I just said that you uh, pretty much to paraphrase. I said, "I'm just reminding you that you still owe me this. I'm still expecting it." Um, and as you know, the simple interest has been gaining on the principal for at a rate of 10% per year. And uh, if you pay me the full amount within 15 days of the date of this letter, I'll drop everything. I'll inform the Labor Commission that this has been paid and the case is closed. And if you don't, then I'll pursue the recovery of my, you know, what's due me by any means possible, including, you know, this, this, and this. And so it was a very direct and assertive letter that um, left absolutely no wiggle room. So. That's great. I mean, that's just fantastic. All I can say is go, go, Rodzilla. So uh, that's, uh, that's just beyond wonderful. So what are you uh, planning on doing with the money? Well, there has been a large chunk of uh, credit card debt that's been sitting on my credit card since I started, or since this um, non-payment thing started. So 
there yeah, will be sure that. The, uh, that's but all the hookers and blow stuff, right? Yeah, there's <laughs> hookers and blow, especially in California. You know? <laughs> right. Oh, I don't think yeah, they have the, any there. The, you have to go to the, the demand is higher out here. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, yeah, there is going to be a, a solid chunk of donation coming your way because that um, this literally could not have happened, I think, without you and Christina. So. Well, I appreciate that, of course, but I mean, remember that your business is uh, is the key, right? And uh, uh, so, but I appreciate that. I mean, whatever you whatever you think is fair and right, and whatever makes you feel good, I certainly hugely yeah. appreciate it. But if you chose to send nothing, you've been very generous already. So, you know, whatever you no, feel okay. is, is right. But uh, no, no, I've already right. um, I've already kind of capitalized my business by buying a just a huge hoss of a computer and um, a package of SolidWorks, which is a three three D design package. So. Right, and remember, um, I think this first came up a couple of months ago, and this is why I was saying as far as donators go, because for us, uh, it's, 10, it's 10% a week, uh, and I think it's been, it's been about 12 weeks so far since this first came up. Christina, can you help me remember that? Oh, dear, she's leaving the room. Um, <laughs> in shame. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> so 10% a week. Oh, wow. You know, do you want to just send it straight up here? Let me... <laughs> I'll just sign the back of the check. I'll endorse it and send it forward. I, you know, I'd like you to think of this as, as really just a moral victory. <laughs> not, not financial. Not financial in any way, shape, or form. Mostly, mostly Pyrrhic is the way that uh, <laughs> is the way that it works. Yeah, Christina says uh, congratulations. She doesn't have a mic, but. Uh, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And I mean, this is great because this is foundational too to you moving forward. Now that you can do this and you know you can do it, right, then as you deal with potential customers, with people, because people are going to be late paying your bills, they're going to give you the runaround. This is just natural as far as a startup goes, right? I mean, uh, my experience with the startup stuff is, you know, <laughs> the really reliable people don't do business with you because they already have people they're doing business with, right? So you do have to take some more dodgy contracts and uh, knowing that you could be firm in the collection uh, and firm in the whole relationship. I mean, it's very hard to be re retroactively firm with people, but um, right. uh, you can, you know, in the whole relationship up front, you're a stand-up guy, you're strong, you're, you know, you're, um, you're firm without being stern, you're, you know, fair without being soppy. And what happens is then when it comes time to ask for payment, uh, you've got a whole history of, of how these people perceive you and, and, how, well, no, and so how they see that you, what you're all about. And then it's real easy, right? But if you've sort of been like, like I was early in my career in the software world, you know, just sort of head ducking and, you know, tucking my forelock and clutching my hat in my hands and saying, oh, any work you give me would be wonderful, right? Then th there's a whole relationship and, and perception that's set up then that makes it that much more difficult down the road. But, you know, you going in this, uh, you know, 20 feet tall and, uh, uh, you know, 300 pounds of muscle, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really cool. I, oh, there's there's another thing that, um, speaking of reputation or something, that, uh, let's see, a little over a week ago, I guess, I had uh, a dinner on uh, Friday night with a guy I used to work with. He was my boss's boss at my previous company before this one I'm just leaving. And uh, about a year ago, he and I and another guy were close to going into a three-way partnership of con like a consulting firm type thing. And for various reasons, and you know, my own financial insecurity at the time kind of played into the fact that we just didn't start it up. But now that I've launched my own business this time, and he's still doing contracting himself, and so we discussed the, the possibility of kind of partnering up on a lot of projects because he has very solid, um, well, he has a really solid reputation in, in, the, in the field of medical devices for project management and things like that. And 
So he was saying that um, he was saying that for because I told him that you know it's really great for me to have someone who I respect so much saying I want to work with you, and he said, well, the reason I want to is because you're a very creative engineer, and that can be pretty rare sometimes. So he said that I'm I'm looking forward to the chance to working with you. So. It was really kind of a cool thing to to see someone or to hear someone who I respect so much mirror that back to me. So I I must be doing something right, I guess. Right, right. Well, you know, and it's funny. This is something that um, uh, I've sort of noticed that you know I wish I sort of wish in a way not to feed vanity, but but just sort of genuinely that I sort of wish in a way that there were more competent compliments flowing around in the world. You know, I, I think that we some, this is just a minor aesthetic thing, it doesn't have to do with ethics, but I think that, you know how nice it is to sort of receive that kind of compliment. I think that it is, it'd be nice if there was a little bit more of that floating around in the world, and of course it would be nice if more people were competent, but uh, I sometimes think that uh, people do get, uh, do get a little bit uh, uh, hung up on either thinking that everyone else is... Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, uh, it's nice to hear those kinds of compliments for sure. Right. Yeah, and the other thing that's cool is that um, the company that I'm leaving, um, a few people have asked me for a bunch of my business cards so that they can hand them out. And again, that's kind of another thing that's just really good for the self-esteem is to know that there's going to be people recommending me because what that means is that they've all, they're going to be kind of staking their, you know, they're vouching for me. Yeah, and so they're kind of putting their own reputation out there with it. So that's another kind of a cool thing. Yeah, and just remember, you know, under promise and over deliver. That's that's the way to build a long term business. As far as I, I mean, I I was working at a startup for eight years, and uh, just uh, under promise and over deliver. Right, hedge what you think you can give, and then give, make people. Right? People will only remember the difference between what you promised and what you gave them. They won't remember what you promised, and so right. that would be my other suggestion. Right. Well, cool. That's uh, that's very good advice. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about just now, or uh, mostly it was just crowing about your massive uh, uh, legal victory? No, I think that's that's about enough. I, and again, thank you so much for that. Um, those magic words that you said to me a couple of weeks ago somehow unlocked something really important there. So. Well, it really is. Uh, it's uh, Shazam the, the Cabra is definitely an underutilized phrase. <laughs> and so, you know, pay it forward as best you can. <laughs> really, congratulations. Fantastic. I mean, that's just beyond thrilling. Good for you. All right. Cool. Did uh, we have anybody else who wanted to um, come back in um, uh, before uh, Greg comes back with his, uh, his uh, laundry list of biblical proportions of questions? For <laughs> Uh, you can post questions here if you'd prefer a call. That's fine too. Uh, whichever one you like. Um, type typing is better because then I can interpret it however I want, and it's usually harder to correct. But uh, uh, it's up to you. I'm going to put the on hold music on until I get some questions. <laughs> so think of it as punishment. No, they say that's right. Absolutely, absolutely. It's either that or me singing, saith the wife. <laughs> you know, you got the most compliments of anyone out of that last song that we did together. Yeah. Although nobody made any comments. I had a tiny little thing in there that was very subtle, uh, which was um, when Christina said, don't you ever get tired of hearing yourself talk? <laughs> right in the background, I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> but it was subtle. 
Sing. All right. Uh, no, I don't see anything in the chat window yet. Uh, just uh, chapter one of a novel, I think. Um, <laughs> it was a dark and stormy text window. Uh, suddenly a shot rang out. Uh, okay, so nobody else? So nobody else? Going once, going twice, going thrice. Uh, can, I be, can people hear me or no? Uh, I can hear you, and other people can, for sure. Okay. Uh, I think there might be a problem with my voice card, but I was on the boards earlier uh, yesterday, and we were discussing the uh, is-ought dilemma. I'd be happy to to uh, debate that point if, in, the, in the meantime, if you want. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Uh, what, uh, by what name can I call it, thou? Uh, Franklin is good. Franklin, excellent. Okay, go ahead. Um, well... I mean, uh, I don't know how to frame it because uh, it was a long time ago I actually listened to your uh, podcast on the Isot Dilemma. So if you you wanted to frame things by briefly recounting your view on it. Do you think I've listened to it more recently? They just well, passed through I, me like uh, like uh, like Chinese food. No, um, well, I, I figured you'd be more familiar with your own views. I don't know. Sure, sure. Um, well, the the Azor dilemma is nothing that I came up with. It's uh, all the way back to to Hume, and it really was at the end of the religious. Uh, religion solves a lot of problems in a very bad way, right? So, um, w- why why should we be good is the fundamental question of, of ethics, right? I mean, there is what is ethics, but what is ethics is is um, is uh, is only after you say why why should we be good right so if you say why should we eat well well then you can answer that and then you should say what should we eat that is good right so you have to answer the why should we be good and religion of course says that goodness is defined by whatever the priest tells you uh, to do and that the reason you should do it is because God will you know light your soul up for eternity in a hellish fire of damnation. So that's a bit of a hysterical over-answer, I think, <laughs> to put it mildly and highly abusive to the psyche and soul. But uh, the question of why, why be good uh, is uh, Hume sort of exploded this early on in the Enlightenment, uh, late Renaissance, early Enlightenment, sort of 18th century. He was a rather rotund Scottish philosopher. And uh, his uh, argument basically was that there is no such thing as should in the world, right? I mean, there's... There's lots of things, right, uh, uh, in the world. There's trees and rocks and 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 so on. And uh, you, do you basically agree with Hume's position or no? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's indisputable. I mean, unless there's some something I've missed, and well, certainly I, easily I, the case. I think Hume's argument is something of an argument from ignorance. He's saying, well, I can't see that there that the the, the facts of reality imply a moral obligation or way men have to orient themselves to the world, therefore, they don't. And I, I don't think that reasoning is, is, is valid, because uh, we frequently don't see the connection in places, and yet there is one. Well, but, but they, um, the, uh, sorry, I think, I mean, you, you, you could be right, and maybe you've read a lot more Hume than I have, but, but what I recall from, from school was that uh, people thought that, that obligations existed I- I- in terms of God's commandments and God's expectations and God's punishments and so on, and so there was an ought, uh, a should, in the world called God. And Hume was saying, if you don't believe in God, and he got into some trouble for these views, right? I mean, if you don't believe in God, then there's no such thing as a should. Like in the same way that for Plato, numbers and the perfect chair, they all exist in this world of forms. They exist objectively in some other realm. And of course, the Aristotelian view is, no, they don't. They're concepts that exist in our mind. Now, my view, of course, is that um, 
uh, ethics are like the scientific method. The scientific method does not exist in the real world, right? There's no, uh, there's no like little chest where they have a, a big bag of the scientific method somewhere, like they'd have a bag of, of stones or whatever. And uh, so, uh, but the scientific method is not subjective, right? So that to me is the same sort of thing. Ethics, uh, like numbers and like concepts, does not exist in the real world, but can be subject to yeah. logical and empirical norms. Um, okay, there's a there's a lot to chew there. So um, you're uh, you're actually you're an anti-realist in terms of numbers numbers as well, philosophy of numbers. Yeah, the numbers don't exist in the real world, but that doesn't mean that math is arbitrary. Well, I I I, don't, I, I think I disagree with that actually. I don't know how I don't know if it'll necessarily prove to be related to our discussion of the Isoc dilemma, but. Um, they do exist as relations between classes of objects and as properties of, of bodies, right? Well, perhaps you can tell me first what you mean by existence. Um, well, I, I understand that you could have different classes of existence. You could say there, there's such a thing as physical instantiation, but then there's also existence as a property, and I would, I would hold that those are two fundamentally different kinds of existence. I wouldn't say that there's physical instantiation for numbers, but I would say that there is existence. Uh, numbers exist as a, as a way of classifying properties that are inherently similar or relations sure. between classes of entities. But they so, exist in the mind, not in the world, right? Like when human um, beings weren't around, there were still trees and rocks. And before human beings were around, there were a hundred trees in a forest. But the, the concept 100 did not exist in reality until human beings came along. I, I don't think the concept existed, but the relations that the concepts referred to existed. Well, can you tell me what you mean by relations and whether they exist in reality? Uh, that there, there was always a potential for this identification or for this concept to emerge. And well, sure, of course. I mean, it's, sorry, it, it, when I say three coconuts, if there are in fact three coconuts, I'm accurate. And there are three coconuts, but the number three or the relationship between them is the conceptual aggregation in my mind. It's not something that exists subjectively in the real world. Well, but this conceptual, um, the, the ability for this con concept to exist, this concept can only exist if there's something in nature, there's some physical property that allows for its formation, right? Well, that's not well. It's true for numbers, for sure, but it's that's the ontological proof of God, right? Which is to say, there's an idea of God, therefore there's a God, uh, which I'm not saying you're making the argument of. But oh no, 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 no! I wouldn't. Well, I would say that it's different with numbers because they're such a relatively primitive concept. With God, the reason that argument fails is, I mean, um, you've uh, just to reference Descartes' meditations on first philosophy. Mm -hmm. He uh, he has a, 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 a section in there where he basically looks at the ontological argument, and he modifies it and he says, well, the reason that um, God is different from things like unicorns is that a unicorn is actually made up of parts of more basic concepts, right? Right. And God isn't. But actually, you can account for the exist the idea of a, a concept of God by accumulating more basic uh, ideas out of which that concept is made. You just say conscious entity, uh, not physical, uh, all-powerful, and then you have your concept, right? Right, so, right, right. right. Um, uh, Descartes actually sort of clarified things in a way that didn't really help his argument very well. So I'd say... <laughs> right. um, I, I, it's I, one I'd of the many that, things that didn't help his argument, but yeah, come <laughs> on. Um, so I'd say that he actually does have a point if 
the concept in question is something that's fundamentally unreducible because you couldn't derive at something. You can, you can kind of mentally uh, uh, put categories together, but those fundamental categories can't exist out of nothing. Right, and so I think that you and I are probably on the same page. If we were to say, if every single human being left the planet, there would be no such thing as the concept of numbers that would be left behind? Uh, yeah, but th there would still be a property in nature that would allow for that concept to be developed potentially, and there would be the, the, the reference of that uh, concept still. Well, and those two two words, and I'm sorry, I'm just uh, this this is just a language thing. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. For mm -hmm. sure, if human being, if every if, if I put three coconuts on the table and then every human being leaves the planet, there are still three coconuts on the table. I mean, I have no problem with that. Object constancy is pretty basic, but um, but there's nothing in reality that uh, exists independently of the physical entities that would constitute a property other than the observation of it, right? So there's no number three floating like a sort of shimmering arc of electricity between these three coconuts, right? For sure, there are three coconuts, but they only exist as atoms in space and, and energy, right? It's only matter, and we can, of course, it's like matter with space between it, so we can count three coconuts, but the number three leaves the planet with every, all the human beings, right? There's nothing, the properties are the same, whether we apply number three. If I look at three coconuts and say, that's four coconuts, I haven't changed the nature of the coconuts in any way. And if all human beings leave the planet, the nature of the coconuts themselves has not been changed in any way. Is that, uh, we, do well, we agree on that, or is that something that you think is different? Um, I mean, I would... I definitely don't agree with the Platonic conception that there is some form of three out there that the, that the, the coconuts participate in. Right. Uh, that I would just refute using Occam's razor. I'd say, well, you can just say, no, it's a, it, it, you, know, you don't need to evoke another world in order to explain it. Therefore, the principle of parsimony, parsin, you know what I'm saying, parsimony. Yeah, parsimony. Yeah. Um, uh, would allow us to uh, to do away with that. But there there is something in nature that uh, that the property refers to, otherwise it wouldn't be a useful thing to ascribe to objects, right? Oh, for sure, yeah, for sure. I mean, the three coconuts all have similar atoms, they have similar biological structures, they have similar sizes, similar physical properties, so for sure, human beings, the, the concepts that, that we derive from grouping like objects are valid, right, to the degree that we correctly identify uh, like objects, right? So for me, like the, the conceptual derivation that goes on in our minds from observation of, of things in the real world. It does, it's not subjective, right? I can't just look at three coconuts and say, oh, look, there's two coconuts and a ballerina, right? I mean, it's not just something that you can make up. But it also, for me, the, the concept numbers exist entirely within the human mind. That doesn't make it subjective, right? The scientific method exists entirely within the human mind, but that doesn't mean that the scientific method is subjective because it's derived from and describes the actions of matter and energy in reality, which is not subjective. Well, then, uh, just to clarify things, I think there's a question I'd have to ask, which is, what is it about nature, then, that makes the mind's formulation of that concept uh, useful? Because well, there atoms. has to be something... Atoms? Yeah, atoms. I mean, it's all the way back to Democritus, right? But um, the, reason that, the reason that concepts are valid is, is twofold. One is that atoms have like properties, and two, that uh, universal laws of, of gravity okay. and, and thermodynamics and all that exist, right? So the reason, I mean, the reason that we know that um, carbon is carbon and gold is gold is because carbon atoms have particular properties which show up through the evidence of the senses. 
and because uh, gold atoms have particular properties, you know, shiny and whatever kind of stuff that translate through our senses. So the reason the concepts are valid is because the laws of the universe are universal and constant and absolute, and because uh, atoms have particular properties which we can figure out through the senses. Um, but uh, the, the numbers are used more extensively than that, right? They don't just refer to the properties of atoms. They refer to the properties of energy, spatial relations. So there has to be something more than that going on in order, for, uh, in order to give a full account of the usefulness of number, right? Uh, no, sorry, I thought you meant concepts as a whole. For sure, yeah, no, numbers are, are more specific, and, and of course you have numbers referring to things that don't exist in the real world, right? You have negative numbers and, you know, bizarre things like that, and that don't exist in the real world, right? So, uh, for sure, they're an extrapolation, but if there was no constancy in matter, obviously we wouldn't exist as a species, but if there was no constancy in matter and no specific pro uh, properties to uh, atoms, then we wouldn't come up with the idea of two rocks or two coconuts or two trees to okay, begin with. I, I guess our, I, I think our theory of concepts is sufficiently similar for, for us to move on. Uh, if something comes up, we'll just, we'll just discuss sure. it. But um, my, prob my problem with the, the is-ought dichotomy is first, I, I think it's um, an argument from ignorance, as it, as it appears in Hume. He says, mm -hmm. I don't see the connection, therefore there isn't a connection. And I don't, I don't think that's valid. You need to demonstrate you need to arrive at something more, that there's some sort of logical contradiction involved in assuming there's a connection or to definitively prove there's no connection. Um, and uh, second, uh, I think if you, if you look at the nature of organisms, they have, um, you can see that there are certain conditions that benefit their survival and their happiness or their well-being, let's say health, mm -hmm. and there are certain other conditions that don't. And the, the nature of, the, of ought is... Um, that if you're a living being, you should, if you, you know, in order to continue to live, act in a certain way that uh, your own nature and natural law causes, you know, it sort of creates a moral law for you because you are a living entity. And uh, I mean, yeah. that, that's basically Rand's view of it. And right. given that, then the Isaac dichotomy uh, only leaves you with a single question, which is, do I want to live or do I not want to live? And I think it's a safe assumption that most people want to live, since people who die uh, just go ahead and do so and cease to be a problem when it comes to the nature of moral valuation. Right. And I, I mean, I certainly respect uh, hugely the, the Randian contribution to ethics. I, I find some problems with it, uh, which doesn't mean anything in terms of true or false, it just means I have some problems with it. But... Um, the challenge is that the, um, the flourishing of the organism occurs at the individual level, right? There's no such thing as the good of the species when it comes to genetics, right? That's Dawkins' argument, and I think it's a good one, right? That he says that, that um, the, you know, the, 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 it's not the human species that flourishes. It's, hu it's individuals, right? Now, for certain individuals, um, flourishing uh, occurs at the expense of everyone else, right? So... Uh, there's no such thing as that which is good for the human species as a whole. There's that which is good for each individual. So if you happen to be a violent sociopath, you will flourish much more by provoking conflict and violence and so on, and you will flourish directly at the expense of those who don't like violence. Um, well, when it comes, I, I mean, I'm not sure that... I, I'd ha I have some problems with Dawkins... The way Dawkins just totally rejects... Uh, by the way, can you still hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, 
the idea of, of species-based selection, because while I would agree that uh, gene is the primary unit of selection, um, the radical version of his law would say that there actually is no individual selection, right? Because the gene is, is the primary right. unit of natural right. selection, and the body is just sort of this this machine that genes use to propagate in itself. In, right, in like I'm view. just the method by which my little toe makes another little toe, right? Exactly. Right. And, uh, or even worse, just creates DNA, DNA that corresponds to that, that little right. toe. Right, right, right. But we, we still have and use this, this idea of health. Um, and, and we still think it's relatively well-defined, or at least something you can use as a general rule in practice without much problem, even though... Uh, strictly speaking, in terms of natural selection, this idea doesn't uh, is not the best way to account for natural selection, right? Well, I like agree, you, but I mean, I, I think that the problem with the Randian approach is that it, it assumes a, spe a species-wide ethics, and ecologically, or, or, or I guess more biologically, uh, mm -hmm. individual flourishing can often occur at the great expense of others, right? So this is the Genghis Khan example, where it's like one out of 200 Asians is descended from Genghis Khan, right? Because he was a brutal dictator who raped everything in, its, in his path, right? So as far as the flourishing of his health and so on goes, the transmission of his genes, the success of his life, uh, he did a lot better through brutality than, he would ha than his victims did by not being brutal. Um... Yeah, but if you looked at the totality of genes of brutal people versus non-brutal people, there are more genes of non-brutal people, even though Genghis Khan was amazingly successful. So as a class, you, it, it, the class is less successful, even if the individual might be an exception, right? Like in poker tournaments, the guy who has the chip lead at the end of the first day is always some reckless idiot um, who, you know, just gambles wildly. And But the person who wins the tournament is normally a guy who played the, the, the optimal strategy. And, um, and the way you account for this is if you look at the reckless people as a class, on average they didn't do as well as the, as the, as the people who played the, the correct strategy. And it just happened that one of them was very successful because there's a wider variance in it. Well, but I mean, if, and again, this is just, I'm just working empirically here, but if you look around the world, I think it's fairly safe to say that brutal, brutal people tend to be in charge of countries around the world. And so the survival strategy for the people who are not violent is just, you know, keep your head down, don't ask questions, don't cause any problems, and hope to breed before you get killed, right? So as far as success goes, the average Iraqi was far less successful in terms of satisfying his wants than Saddam Hussein was, right? So what was good for Saddam Hussein, and obviously he thought it was good because he did it, was to become a brutal dictator and kill lots of people, and that caused him as an individual to flourish. And that's the problem I have with the Randian approach, that each individual... Uh, can have um, that which is good for me, which is very different from uh, that who he preys upon, right? If he becomes a parasitical organism, and human beings can definitely do this, this is the foundation of most societies, right? You have a priestly class and a warrior class and an aristocracy that feeds upon the, uh, the average. Uh, they do very well out of it, right? And they, they tend to flourish quite nicely. And then you can say, well, yes, but they become unhappy and so on, but that's a different argument. Well, but I don't... I actually think... I mean, it, 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 the, not to stretch the poker analogy, but I think what it is is that Saddam Hussein was playing a strategy that is objectively inferior um, on average, but that has a, a much wider potential profit margin. And even that's hard to it, 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 uh, possibly wrong because, you know, I, I would say Bill Gates is a more successful man than Saddam Hussein was. 
Well, yes, um, but that's only happened. in a free market, right? In a, in a free market. If Bill Gates was born in Iraq, he would be killed, right? So, I mean, in, in the world of the free market, for sure, right, Saddam Hussein would do less well than Bill Gates. But in Iraq, uh, in a dictatorship, in a brutal environment, in an environment of violence, and I would dare say evil, then Saddam Hussein does a whole lot better than Bill Gates, right? So Hitler was an unemployed bum who, because he was able to get his horrible theories more generally accepted, became the ruler of, you know, half to half of a dozen countries. And so that's, that's the challenge, that when you talk about success within individuals, uh, you have the problem that evil people uh, succeed by preying on good people. And like the Queen, right, the Queen of England, um, has a survival strategy that requires virtually no effort on her part relative to, to others. And so she's doing a whole lot better because of that system, although it's enforced through violence. Well, but um, I, I think the, the, the premise is the fact that some people do benefit more than they would um, from that, that mode of behavior. It doesn't follow that that mode of behavior has the highest expected value, so to speak, for, for men generally, right? Yeah, but there is no um, such thing as men generally. I'm sorry to interrupt, but th that's my fundamental issue. There is no such thing as men generally. That's the pr to me, that's the flaw with the Randian argument, that there's no such thing. I mean, there's each individual is going to try and maximize his resource usage with the minimal amount of effort. And I, I, I think you and I are on the same page that I believe in universal and absolute ethics, and I'm sure you do as well. But I don't mm -hmm. think that the proof of them is, well, for men in general, because there's no such thing. There's individuals making choices to advance their own interests. And some people do far better by using violence than they would through the free market. Well, I'm not saying that there's a, a general commonwealth or a general interest. I'm saying that there is a single aspect. That there, is, there is something in nature that allows us to... Uh, objectively identify men as belonging to the class of, of human being, right? Right, and there's, one of the things that... This is not just an arbitrary it, designation. No, I agree with that, but one of the things that we know is that it is a very powerful, potent, and successful survival strategy for certain individuals to use violence to get what they want. But I, I don't think it is. I think, I think what it is is that it's, it would be like saying, well, you know, there's no reason to not play the lottery, right? Because... Uh, you know, some people do very well with the lottery. They uh, they they hit it big, and then they're rich. But um, that's just because they got insanely lucky. The the lottery is actually an objectively bad investment. Well, and but governments governments are not behavior. right. Governments are not governments, and the military are not. Saddam Hussein, like a third of the people, or a quarter of the people, I think, in Iraq, works directly for the government through the Ba'ath Party or something else. Right? And they, uh, they did far better by obeying Saddam Hussein than they would have by fighting Saddam Hussein. Right? So uh, governments are this massive transfer mechanism from the, the average to, to the minority, from the majority to the minority. That minority does a lot better under that system than they probably would under the free market. I mean, if you go to uh, your post office and you see the average postal worker, and if you think, gee, you know, if that, uh, if that service got privatized, they'd make a lot less money, get a lot less uh, benefits, they'd have to work harder. Uh, so for them, it would be a net negative, uh, just in terms of resources, to not be in a system which is supported by coercion. Well, I, I know that Rand got this argument a lot, but I, I think the question is, do you want to, would you rather be an average guy, average Joe, in a society where people are free to use their minds to the best of their ability to create the products of, because anything that has value is in some way the product of someone's mind. Would you rather be an average Joe in 20th century United States 
or would you rather be the king of the of you know some some uh, mud village uh, out in the middle of nowhere? I mean, um, it, it, the, the things that give our lives value and support our the our our continued survival are all products of the mind, and the use of force is contrary to the creation of those products. Uh, I don't think Saddam Hussein is better off than an average person is in a free society. Well, I would agree with you. Um, he, I would agree with you, but the issue is that Saddam Hussein didn't think that. Well, yeah, but he was just wrong. Well, but you can't use that. I mean, that's begging the question, right? You're trying to establish that he was wrong, and then you can't say, but he was wrong. He was certainly right for himself, right? Because he, as a crazy, evil sociopath, did a whole lot better having his 20 palaces to sleep in and, you know, all the gold he could eat and all, right? He did a whole lot better in that society than he would have done under a, a free society, or at least that was his belief, right? Yeah, but I think it was a false belief. I mean, he, uh, he, uh, he had to be constantly worried about rebellion. Uh, he had to be constantly, his threat was, con his life was constantly under the threat of violence. And in fact, he did die a violent death. He didn't live as long as he otherwise would have. And he uh, was in prison the last years of his life and, and executed. And it's right, but then you, and, and he I, chose a violent path of existence. Right, and this is where the Randian, I just did a podcast, on, a video on this, right, a podcast on this. This is where the Randian argument has to go, which is to say, and this is back to the Platonic thing, right? Not in terms of the forms, but the, the, the moral philosopher, when faced with somebody who clearly chooses evil, right, because they, that person, Saddam Hussein, could have left the country at any time and gone into exile anonymously in Brazil, right? So he chose to stay as the head of this dictatorship. So you can say, well, he was, he was hunted and he was paranoid and he was this and he was that, but he could have left at any time. Clearly, he preferred to stay in that environment. That was his preference. And so then the, the ethicist has to say, well, secretly he was unhappy. But now you're out of the realm of proof, right? The proof is that we know that Saddam Hussein believed that he was doing a lot better in his environment by being a brutal dictator. And the evidence is, at least according to the objective evidence, is that he did do very well in that environment and certainly a lot better than he would have had somebody else, right? Because in that kind of social situation, which I agree was wrong, and I, you, know, you and I agree with that, uh, if, if Saddam Hussein is like, well, either I take power or someone else is going to take power and they're going to kill me or they're going to threaten me or they're going to rape my wife, so, because that's the cultural ethic. So we do have to, I think, just assume that he did what he wanted because he thought it was the best and he didn't find it too unpleasant to be paranoid and to be watched and to feel the danger because uh, he obviously didn't choose to live a different life and he didn't leave despite the billions of dollars he had and go and find some other secret place to live. Hmm. Um. I mean, and I agree, I, mean, with I, you that, I, I, I agree with you that there's absolute right and wrong, and I agree with you that he was an evil guy. I don't think the Randian argument does it. I mean, obviously, I have a different argument, right? But uh, I think that... I, sorry, I go ahead. I think what it is, is is that we're looking at, at the individual Saddam Hussein and seeing his success, and we're not looking at the class of people who chose to live their life according to violence. I mean... I think Saddam Hussein's the guy who won the lottery, or you know, was the guy who was making the bad investments, but just just got insanely lucky with some D-class bonds, right? Um, well, but but say, everyone else around him too, right? Like uh, his extended family, and you know, a quarter of the Iraqi population who worked for him, and like it wasn't just him; it was a whole bunch of people who cashed in on Saddam Hussein, the same way that you know, companies that give money to presidential candidates can cash in. 
uh, as well. So it's not, I mean, there's a, whole, there's a whole class of people, and this is how society in general is organized, that's hegemonic and violent and hierarchical, even here in the West. And there's lots of people who do enormously well. Look at all the people who are profiting from the war in Iraq. Right? They do enormously well because of this kind of violence. It's not just one person. Violence as a whole works really well for a very large class of people. That's why they do it, and that's why they don't give it up. But better than nonviolence works for the class of people who adhere to nonviolence? But it doesn't matter because they're making their decisions based on their own self-interest. And their own self-interest is to have a system wherein they offload the cost of enforcement to the cops and the military and they get to keep all the profits, right? So if you're a bad mm -hmm. teacher, you want to be in a government-run school system because otherwise you won't have a job, right? That's just your own, but that's better for you, right? In terms of other people have to pay the cost of collecting the taxes and enforcing it, and you can just go around being a bad teacher and not get fired. So it's better for you as an individual. I agree with you that rational and pa rationalism and pacifism is best, but I don't agree that it's best for everyone because empirically it's just not so. I mean, I, I, I do think the issue is that I'm evaluating things on the basis of how would it work generally, and you, and you seem to be evaluating on the basis, well, it works in this particular circumstance. Right? But, but that's how people live. Right? That's how people make their decisions. Like, the reality is that the world is organized by a brutal cartel of people, and it's a very large cartel of people. Uh, if you include the public sector, it's usually between 25 and 35% of society. Um, it's a very large group of people who use the force to get what it is that they want. And clearly they think that it's better for them. And we can make an argument and say, well, uh, Saddam Hussein, if you step down, then uh, you, you know, society will be better off in general. But that's not how people make their decisions, right? They make their decisions based on what is best for me individually. And a very large number of people uh, decide that uh, coercion or the fruits thereof are beneficial. And that's, that's the way the world works. I think it's evil and so do you. But I don't think that we can make the case based on the general benefits to mankind because that's not how people make decisions, right? And, and that's, I mean, that's clearly not how people make decisions. Now, maybe it's how they should make decisions, but uh, that's begging the question. So we have to sort of try and establish that that's an inevitable result of the reasoning. Well, I mean, but I think that if you, if you live your life knowing that what you do is, is steal from other people, because, you know, you and I both agree that's basically what... Um, it, uh, sorry, my sound card is a little messed up. Sure. Um, what was I saying? Um, then you have, to, you have to constantly live with the knowledge that, A, you're engaging in a behavior that's parasitical and potentially destructive of the very source of the thing that you, you live off of, right? Because there's a chance that the people will just stop producing for you. And uh, you, you also have to carry with yourself the knowledge that you're not actually an efficacious being to survive in this world, that you're just a parasite. And I think it's safe to say that it's in the nature of man to be happiest when he has a sense of self-efficacy. I don't think Saddam Hussein was a happy man. I don't think Hitler was a happy man. I don't think Stalin was a happy man. Um, well, but and, and you, you could be right, and there's lots, of, lots and lots of ways in which I would agree with you. Uh, I think that they were absolutely probably quite miserable. But they were happier doing what they were doing than anything else they could have been doing, and we know that because that's what they did. Well, right, so I if, mean, if you're going to use the argument from unhappiness, right, so if you can't use the argument from how human beings should live as a whole, which I don't think that, that is valid, then you have to use the argument from unhappiness. But then you face the problem of saying, well, 
if this makes everybody, if evil makes everybody unhappy, and human beings prefer happiness to unhappiness, why are so many people evil? Well, I think I, I've gotten this objection before that if if, um, if happiness is, or if if there's a moral law kind of written in human nature, why is it that people just don't automatically follow this law? Because grasshoppers automatically do what's best for grasshoppers as a general rule, or moths for moths, except when they're flying into the flame or whatever. Um, that that this is only really a problem for men, but. I don't think that you can conclude that just because they did what they did, that that was what they were happiest doing, because they were ignorant of the moral law. Um, yeah, I mean, if, but if, it, if you don't you don't conclude that a person took the best route from point A to point B uh, because that was the route he took. You can still argue that he took a bad route, that he took a route that didn't meet the teleological end he sought or should have sought as efficiently as as he could. Right, but I think that when you do see the vast majority of people taking a particular route that you don't think is best, I think it's very important to say, well, why are they taking it? Moth to the flame. I mean, because they just don't. There's, there's something in their nature that makes it difficult for them to process the nature, the, the, the correct mode of behavior that they should be following. Well, but. that's certainly a possibility. I don't know that that's been subjected to empirical proof. So, for instance, I mean, the way that to prove this theory would be a psychological experiment where you would look at people in prison and you would inform them of the moral law and you'd see if you could get them to change and you'd also find out their degree of relative unhappiness and why it is that they did what they did even yeah. though it made it unhappy. I mean, this is some, something that would be subject to empirical testing. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the, the problem is just testing it because they're testing theories I and mean, one of the reasons that it's so difficult to investigate human behavior is that they're they're moral sanctions right on what you can and can't test i mean the and the self-reporting too right yeah and, and self-reporting the milgram experiment was uh, a fantastic from a purely uh, scientific perspective it was a fantastic result right uh but the the moral the, the hell those people must have been put through when they learned that about themselves was, uh, is something incredible. Right? Now, the other so. thing that I would say um, is that, and to me, you know, we're starting from the same place and we're ending up at the same place. It's just some of the steps in the middle that I find problematic. Uh, the mm -hmm. other challenge is that the argument that either there is a general moral law that uh, people should, should obey uh, or that there's an inbuilt moral nature to human beings that they act they will become unhappy if they don't obey it. This argument has been made for thousands of years, right? Certainly since mm -hmm. the pre-Socratic times, and it hasn't done squat to make the world a less bad place, right? In very many ways, the world is worse now than it was in the... Um, uh, because governments have more power, there's weapons of mass destruction and so on. So the other reason that I'm not sure that it's a very good uh, argument is because looking over history, uh, it doesn't work, right? I mean, that this argument that, that uh, uh, evil people are secretly unhappy and they'd change their ways if they knew what really made them happy and so on, it doesn't work, right? And, and the reason that it doesn't work is because there's immediate gains and then there's gains which will accrue to the future and human beings as biological organisms will always tend to gravitate towards immediate gains. So I think that... Uh, just empirically looking at the argument, and Ayn Rand made it very powerfully and very positively, and I don't know that anyone's ever going to make it you know, that well again, it still doesn't work, right? I mean, so there's something, for me, there's something missing in the argument. If a certain cure has been tried for an illness for 2,000 years and that illness keeps getting worse, I think it's time to look for a new cure. That's, just, that's not an argument in a way, like it's just looking at the empirical history of the argument and seeing how it really doesn't work.
Well, it, it seems to me like that argument assumes that there's actually a way to quantify the prevalence of an idea in a society. I mean, I, I would argue that, in fact, things have gotten worse precisely because we've moved away from this idea, right? I mean, uh, the, the greatest atrocities we've seen have been in the century, the, the 20th century, which is the century of, you know, phenomenalism, uh, Kant, uh, Hegelianism, uh, communi- you know, Marxist communism. Sure, sure. Um, because those it, it, beliefs it, it, serve people in power, right? The same way that religious subjectivism serves those in power, whether it's religious, postmodernist, Hegelian, right? So subjectivism is always going to be the default position of education from those in power, because, right? So, and I'm sure you and I would agree with that. That once you become objective, you don't need hegemonic power structures anymore. Uh, so uh, those beliefs will always come back because they serve the needs of those in power. Yeah, but uh, it's it, it was it. it the, the, these these things that we look at as you know, as as morally wrong, they have come to exist precisely because people have moved away from the thing I would call the cure, which is um, understanding of the objective moral law. Right, but why have they moved away from it? I, I mean, I have an argument around family history and the argument for morality and so on, but the real question is why? Why do human beings? Why, why is it that the the age of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and, and so on, why is it that there's these tiny little flashes of rationality in human history and then everybody goes stampeding back towards subjectivism? Well, I mean, the only thing I, can, I could say is that it's because uh, practicing moral valuation, proper moral valuation, is ex- an ex- extremely painful process, right? I mean, if you look at all these, if you look at Kant, you look at Hegel, you look at Marx, there's a tendency to kind of uh, want to avoid the pains of reality by submerging yourself in ignorance. With Kant, it's the phenomenal noumenal distinction. With Hegel, it's the idea that, you know, we're just involved in this process that's working itself out. So the world spirit, to, yeah. The world spirit, you know. And it, in Marx, it's the idea, well, you know, we don't need to deal with um, the realities of what a, our communist society is going to look like because our underlying consciousness is going to change and the economic relations change. And so we can just sort of leave it over there as an undiscovered, um, you know, uh, holy, you know, uh, promised land that we don't need to think about. All these people have shown that, that what leads them back to the subjectivism is a desire to avoid uh, the painfulness of thought and anticipating right. future problems. I, I so, think I mean, I mean, that's I, it. I think that that's an excellent analysis. I mean, there's very little that I would disagree with that. And obviously, when I say excellent, I don't just mean that I agree with it, but I think it's a very good analysis. But I think then, as an ethicist, you're going to be faced with the challenge, right? Because you're going to be saying, well, human beings should be good because it's going to make them happier, right? So that's part of the argument, right? That, that evil people are unhappy. So human beings should be good because it's going to make them happier, and happiness is a motivation. The desire to achieve happiness, the desire to avoid pain, is a significant motivation for mm-hmm. a human beings. But then you face the problem that uh, evil people, or people who are corrupt, or people even who are ignorant, are going to face great pain when confronting the truth in a philosophical manner. So if human beings are motivated by pleasure and pain, which is part of the argument for morality, it's also part of the argument, and a significant part of the argument, as to why people will not choose to be moral, because it's very painful. You know, I mean, I see what you're getting at. If it's as if if some you can't tell a wolf, well, you know, you'd be better off taking up our agriculture, right? right? It's just not in it's just not in its nature. They won't believe it's not you. Do right. it. Saddam Hussein would and never believe you that he would be happier if he was a pig farmer or you know so, or a stockbroker. So in a sense, it's that there's almost it's almost as if some of these people, 
and I don't want to sound platonic here, but it, they're almost too dumb to see that they'd be happier, right? Is well, or, the or they, there's too much, they've done so much wrong that the pain that they would have to go through would far outweigh any happiness that they might get, right? Um, like, the, to me, there's a point of no return when it comes to evil, and I think it's mostly around to do with harming children. But um, it, once you've done so much, right, like, if you smoked for 40 years, like, two packs a day, and then you quit, you're not going to get better. Like, your, your risks, like, you can't go back to being a non-smoker guy, right, in terms of your health. And it's the same thing with moral corruption. Once you've gone so far, then turning back uh, becomes more pain than you could conceivably get uh, back from being a good person, where there's no restitution yeah, no. in particular, right? Well, I mean, it's possible then that we have to add the caveat that the moral law requires that a person have a certain amount of intelligence or a certain openness to his intelligence. But that's true of any science, right? I mean, uh, you, you can't convince a person of physics or mathematics if they, if they close themselves off to the axioms. Um, well, and you can't convince a priest who makes his money from telling people lies uh, that there's no God. I mean, you can, and maybe it'll happen once in a blue moon, but it's so rare that, you know, most atheists don't bother. You don't bother going to the Pope and trying to deconvert him from Catholicism or religion, right? Because his, no, his um, specific economic interest is in spreading these horrible lies. No, so I know this is argument from effect. Oddly enough, it's an argument effect, from effect regarding the argument from morality. But if you, if you don't see the moral laws existing in nature as being absolute, uh, how can you use the argument for morality uh, to to convince people unless they just unless you happen to think well they do happen to hold the same morality I do? Well, um, th that's a long debate, and I, I don't want to completely eliminate everyone else from it. I'll give you my oh, very sorry. brief answer. No, no, this has been very good. I appreciate the the uh, the rigor. Um, my my uh, my argument is that everybody desperately, completely, and totally wants to be good wants to be moral. And uh, I, I use some empirical arguments from that. Like, if you can convince people that going to pick up a machine gun and get killed in the Somme in 1916 uh, is moral, then they will, they will storm the recruiting office to sign up for the draft, right? If you can convince people that something is good, then they will do anything to achieve that. I think that human beings are completely run by the desire to be moral. I think that is inbuilt within us. That's why propaganda is so effective, and that's why it's used all the time. Hitler thought he was being moral, and he was able to convince the Germans that he was being moral, which as a result of their own philosophical and psychological history they were right for. Um, patriotism is considered moral, supporting the president, going to Iraq. Marines are considered moral, and so there are always people who are going to do that. The real question is over the definition of the good. Whoever controls the definition of the good controls the ethics of society as a whole. And so uh, I believe that everybody wants to be good. And when you listen to people, they always will justify their own behavior with reference to absolute morality. Uh, everybody, 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 everybody will do that. Uh, even a rapist, uh, uh, a mass murderer will, whatever. They will always justify what they were doing according to, uh, to ethics, right? So, um, so you need to find the points of agreements that you have in the realm of ethics with people and then use it to widen their definition to the point where they'll give up unhealthy behaviors. 
And um, uh, if you listen to, uh, I can, I'll send you, just give me a post on the board or send me an email. I'll send you to a couple of podcasts where I talk about that. But everybody already wants to be ethical. They just don't know the definition of it. And so you, you start attacking. So somebody says, well, we should be patriotic. But if you can get them to understand that countries don't exist in reality, they're just lines on a map, right? They don't really exist in reality. Then they'll understand that they're being patriotic towards a fantasy and they won't be able to sustain that. So philosophy is just about peeling back all of this nonsense so that people can see the good for what it is. Well, so you're saying that the, the, the issue is to get people to hold to the correct definition, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the correct definitions. Um, uh, so if people, like everybody says, don't steal, right? Uh, everybody says stealing is wrong or rape is wrong or whatever, right? So if stealing is wrong, if somebody's going to be consistent with that, then they'll very quickly understand that, that, that taxation is wrong, right? So, uh, you know, this, this kind of stuff. Like if they say murder is wrong, then you say, well, if somebody puts on a, a, a black hat, do they get to kill? No. Well, what if they put on a green camouflage uniform and call themselves a sergeant, right? As soon as people, like, people get all the basics, it's just a matter of expanding those definitions consistently, which is the same thing in science, right? Everybody knows that rock fall, rocks fall down. It's just about expanding that definition so that you can send a probe to Jupiter, too. Well, but if there isn't a, if there isn't a moral law, then how is it that there's a, there is a correct versus an incorrect definition of morality? Well, I mean, that's like saying because the scientific method doesn't exist in reality, how do we know whether anything is true or false, right? Or because numbers don't exist in reality, how do we know whether a mathematical theorem is true or false? Well, it's logical and consistent and empirically verifiable. Uh, the, the, the same methodology used in all the sciences is used in ethics, right? Where you, any ethical proposition, right? Uh, you don't have to make any, right? I mean, but you then can't say there's no such thing as ethics, not that I'm saying you would, but you, uh, you simply, um, you put forward any proposition, you subject it to the same rigor and logic that any other scientific or mathematical proposition would be set to. Well, but I, I mean, when you say the scientific method doesn't exist in nature, I mean, I would say the scientific, there is something about human nature such that men can only have proper knowledge about certain subjects if they follow X method. So that in a sense, the scientific method is, is present in um, a, a, a law of nature relating to uh, the faculty of man's mind and how it can work. And, and so what do, what do you mean when you say that the scientific method doesn't exist in nature? Well, I mean... I mean it's not just a purely arbitrary creation. No, no, of course not. But then numbers don't exist in nature, but that doesn't mean that mathematics is arbitrary, right? I mean, concepts are either accurately derived from reality or they're not. Concepts are either logical or they're irrational, right? So the concepts which work are those that accurately reflect... The nature of reality, which is science, science, and, and so on, and, uh, and logic, right? So uh, you can't put a mathematical theorem forward which says 2 plus 2 is 5 and 2 plus 2 is 4 at the same time, right? People will just say, that's not, I don't care where you go from here, that's wrong. And you can't put forward a moral theory which says murder is both right and wrong. Or theft, it's both right and wrong simultaneously, right? It's one or the other, right? You sort of make up contradictory definitions. So if people say, well, theft is wrong, then they have to logically oppose taxation, right? Because they can't just make up different rules for different people any more than I can make up different theories of gravity for different rocks, right? So theories have to be universal, consistent, reversible. Uh, they have to be logical. They have to be empirically verifiable. Ethical theories as well as mathematical theories as well as scientific theories, right? Uh, it's just uh, expanding the scientific method to include the science of ethics. But uh, there has to be something about nature that allows us to have accurately derived concepts, right? There well, sure, and that's atoms and, and the uh, universality of, of physical rules, right? 
I mean, the, the well, yeah, nature, nature it, it, doesn't change its rules arbitrarily, and therefore neither can human beings. No, but there is an objective sense in which the idea corresponds to uh, the reality. Sure, and, and the first test of that is, is the concept logical, right? Is it, is it logical? Mm -hmm. If the concept isn't logical, then there's just no way it can be true in any way, shape, or form, right? That's why we know that there's no such thing as a god, right? As the concept is innately self-contradictory. We don't have to go hunting mm -hmm. all over the universe to find that there's no god because god is defined as a square circle, and you don't have to go and check every circle to see if it's square. You just know that the concept is false, right? So if somebody says theft is both right and wrong simultaneously, then you say, uh, sorry, that's not valid, right? <laughs> Whatever you're going to say about ethics, that for sure is not valid. No, no. Well, I, I agree that, the, that one of the tests is that the concept has to be logical. It has to be somehow, even if it's through a very indirect chain, um, relatable to sense, sense perception. But sure. there also has to be something in nature that, like, it's, it, the rules of thought that we find in logic are also rules of nature. Right? Sure, I agree. They're, 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 it's kind of, there are these laws, physical laws, and they lead causality to exist in this way. And when I say you can't affirm the consequent and arrive that the premise is true, it's because causality doesn't work that way, right? Right, right. But I mean, so, sorry, go ahead. So uh, I guess my, my question is that it doesn't seem to make sense to me to view concepts as, as being non-real when they do... Uh, in, a, in a sense, perfect, have to perfectly model something that is real. Well, sure, right? but that's like saying that, I mean, a mirror is going to perfectly reflect me, but that doesn't mean there's another human being inside the mirror, right? I mean, it's not a real human being inside the mirror, it's just a reflection. In the same way, concepts don't actually have to exist in the real world. They exist in my mind, but they're only valid to the degree that they accurately describe things in reality, the most important thing being the requirement for logical consistency. Well, I think the problem, maybe the, the, where we run across a problem is that the word, word exist is, is taken to be sort of a primitive, right? It doesn't, it's not a very descriptive term. It's used in a lot of different ways. I can say the color red exists, but clearly when I say that, I, don't, or I could be referring to the wavelength of the light right. or the, the qualia of actually observing red. Um, similarly, I could say uh, the length three meters exists. Well, maybe you wouldn't actually be able to say that, but I, I can I can speak of existence in different modes, right? So maybe we're just I wouldn't say that it physically exists, or even yeah. Exists I mean, the theory of relativity doesn't exist in the real world in the same way that an atom or a star or gravity does, and or in the same way gravity does. I mean, yeah, gravity exists as a relationship between two objects that's empirical and measurable, and so on, right? So, but the theory of the theory of gravity doesn't exist, right? Evolution exists as a process. The theory of evolution doesn't exist in the real world other than, you know, books and so on, right? But it doesn't have an objective existence in the real world. Well, but that but doesn't mean that the theory... Sorry, go ahead. Some people might say, well, gravity is, uh, the, you know, the, the, shifting, the, the shifting of space-time that, uh, that relativity refers to. So I don't know if you can account for something like gravity. Ah, here comes the music. Excellent. Whoever uh, just came I don't know in, if, I don't know if this guy's gotten so sick of our debate, he's decided that he's going to... to I don't know. Close. This, might be, uh, this might be the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, I feel like there's still a lot of issues that we didn't get to touch. But well, it's I'll okay. We had a good hour. We had a good chat. And I'm glad that we did it this way rather than on the uh, board because that would take uh, give us hand cramps something fierce. 
No, it was. Um, okay, I, I can only stand so much more. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty horrible. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, yeah, we're gonna go out on this music. Uh, thank you. Catch everybody. Appreciate it. And.